Hey guys, this is Rick Godwin, pastor of Summit Church here in San Antonio. Thanks for joining us today. You know, we're excited to have you on our podcast. Our goal is to inspire you and to challenge you and help everyone realize their full potential in Christ. Now enjoy the message. Okay, give me a couple of minutes and I wanna, I, I got an interesting title for this message. I'm calling it First Class or Coach. <laughs> How are you gonna take the trip? Now you have to wait a few minutes, so let me get there. Matthew chapter 20, verse 26, Jesus said, whoever wants to become great among you must sit on the platform. Oh, I'm sorry. Back, I remember being on staff and we had in a Baptist church and we had five thrones up on the platform for all the staff. I used to hate that. I hated that because first of all, the preacher was so boring. It was so awful. We would doze off. You know how anybody, you, you, you sit there, you, you drool or you, you, you'd nod. And of course he had hated it. And I thought, well, it's not our fault. You're the one putting us to sleep and, and, and then wouldn't let us sit down there. So I always just sit down on the floor. I don't want to sit on stage, but that, that's kind of the way the culture goes. I want to have status. I want to be seen. So he said, if you want to be great in my kingdom of, of God, then you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first class must be your slave. Totally upside down, right? Totally upside down to our kingdom on earth. Jesus had one consistent message, and it was good news. His gospel was good news. The word gospel simply means good news. It wasn't a religious term. It was a secular term. If gas went to a dollar, we'd all leave now and go fill up. But that ain't happening. But that'd be good news, right? Are y'all with me? That's okay. I'm trying to make this real simple so you get it. So good news is the gospel is, is a, sounds religious today, but it wasn't in Jesus' day. It just meant good news. So it gets misunderstood in our day, but it was a loaded term in Jesus' day. You know, in Israel, when people thought about the gospel, they thought about verses in the Old Testament, like how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. That's gospel. Who proclaim salvation, who say to Israel, your God reigns. That's in Isaiah 52. So it is with the idea of good news. The proclamation of the gospel was the news that God reigns. He is reigning now. And this expectation was that it would really come when the Romans would be overthrown, the temple would be rebuilt, and oppressors would be defeated. In other words, it's going to come with an act of military strength and power. That was the good news they thought they were waiting on. It was also a loaded word in the Roman Empire. Dr. Tom Wright has written about it. He says, the word for gospel or good news is a secular technical term referring to the announcement of a great military victory and or the birth of or accession of a new emperor, a new ruler, who's going to bring strength and good news to the Roman world. So in the Roman world, good news was synonymous with Caesar is Lord. And they use that language. Now Jesus comes along and said, hey, I've got gospel. I've got good news. But it's going to be a whole lot different than what most people in Israel thought it would be and way different than what most people in the Roman Empire thought it was going to be. 
After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. He said, the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That's in Mark chapter 1. So good news translates gospel. What is the gospel? Uh, There are a lot of summaries here. It's that the kingdom life in God's power and God's presence is now available to anybody who would like to have it. Jesus taught about it all the time, and he said it was the most important thing in all of the world. Remember in Matthew 6, Jesus says, hey, boys, don't worry about what you're going to eat and drink and wear. For people who don't know God, run after all this stuff. And your heavenly Father knows you need some of this. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness or his way of life. Now, he says, let everything be second. Everything else is second place to the kingdom. Everything else will fall into place if you'll put the kingdom first. So he he begged those followers to follow that advice. He sent out his 12, and these are the 12 disciples, apostles. He put them on a mission. It says, when Jesus called the 12 together, he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God. That's in Luke 9. Then he follows it up in Luke chapter 10 and says, the Lord appointed 70 others, sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He said, when you enter a town, tell them the kingdom of God is near you. So after his death and resurrection, we're told in the book of Acts that he appeared to the disciples for over 40 days and taught them about the kingdom of God. In other words, how his kingdom behaves, acts, and values people versus the kingdom of the earth. The last glimpse we have of the church, the last verse in the last chapter of the book of Acts, it says, boldly and without hindrance, Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's in Acts chapter 28. So Jesus had one gospel, and his gospel is the kingdom is here. It looks real different from what people thought it would look like. It's coming through me, through my life, through my word. Now it's possible for ordinary human beings to live in the power and presence of God Almighty. And anybody who wants it can have it. It's in Jesus. And so I've also mentioned here at church how in our day, gospel has been misunderstood by people. And when they hear the word gospel, they think it's the announcement of the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven after you die. Well, that's never what it is. Now, a lot of people in our day think that the gospel itself is just how to get out of trouble with God so that when you die, he'll let you in. But here's the problem. Jesus never said, now I'm going to tell you about the minimal entrance requirements. So, so they'll have to let you into heaven when you die. He never said that. What what did he say? He said, here's the good news. Now the kingdom of God has come to earth. Now up there is coming down here. If you want to, you can live in it. Jew or Gentile, Republican or Democrat, old, young, slave free, male or female, anybody who wants to live in my kingdom can. It doesn't matter anymore. Well, nobody had ever heard that in their life. So the good news, is especially for people who thought they were a billion miles away from God. You can just turn around. That's all repentance means. Just turn around and walk right into the kingdom if that's what you want. So his gospels, of course, include the free forgiveness of our sins purchased by his blood at the cross where he suffered, died, because we are all guilty, 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 and we need forgiveness. I'm pretty righteous on some days. 
How about you? I'm not guilty all the time, but I do run into it occasionally. And I mean, that means you need a lot of forgiveness, right? And it includes the promise that death is not going to have the last word over my life or yours. Not in this world. His resurrection means that when we die, we get to live with God. But the good news of Jesus is not, I'm going to tell you how to get from down here to up there, which seems to be the big emphasis. His gospel was that up there is now coming down here. See, God made the earth. God loves the earth. And God intends to redeem the earth. It's his earth. Jesus said that we get to be a part of that. He says, when you pray, I want you to pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, not go. Your will be done on earth, in summit, in office, in the home, in Ukraine, in Indonesia, in San Antonio, as it is in heaven. So with the coming of Jesus, God wanted to get the kingdom of God into the earth. How we behave, how we act, how we think, what we value, how we treat people. That's all part of the kingdom, the government of God. Well, it started with Jesus, his body on earth, his teaching, his life, and his resurrection. And it was good news for everybody. See, if you're in the kingdom, uh, you, can, you can be in the kingdom if you're not. That's, that's the good news. You don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops. You just come to Jesus and say, look... I know the truth about me. I find it every day I drive in Texas. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I confess. I want to be forgiven by you, God. I want to be your follower and your friend forever. I want to be part of your kingdom adventure. Well, that's the good news. Cool. God says that in the Holy Spirit, there's new power available to the human race, and it starts to spread. It starts to, because it's like never heard it before. There's never been anything like that that has spread like this in the whole world. Dr. Rodney Starr, who's a professor of sociology at the University of Washington, wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. He calculated how it is that Christianity spread in the Roman Empire at the rate of about 40% per decade. A decade is 10 years. So in the year 40 AD, that's just a few years after Jesus died, there were roughly 5,000 Christians in the world. Now, that looks pretty insignificant and negligible to the reader. Then it starts to spread, and it keeps going until by 350 A.D., just about 300 years later, 33 million, or 56% of the Roman Empire, named the name of Jesus. Wow, it was incredible. How did that happen? The Roman Empire was collapsing. Yet this movement of Jesus just kept spreading. And I remind everybody who's so fatalistic reading the news, every time there's a war, every time there's drama, oh, this is it, this is it. Jesus said, of my kingdom, there will be no end. Read it again in Isaiah 9. Of my government, of my kingdom, it ain't going anywhere. Kingdoms come and go. Presidents, dictators, and these bad people come and go. Nations come and go. But mine will never. It is eternal. I'm part of something permanent, not something temporal. And partly this happened because people throughout that part of the world had never heard a message like this before. Now, one of our problems in Western culture is that the gospel has been a part of our world and our culture for, for decades. Even in people who don't believe, it colors everything. 
It's been woven into our lives and culture for so long, we just blow it off and take it for granted. And we forget what a world apart from the good news would look like. We get a little glimpse of it on the nightly news with the current war going on with Russia and Ukraine. Dan Shaw is a missionary and an anthropologist at Fuller Theological Seminary. And Dan devoted years of his life to translating the Bible for a tribe in Papua New Guinea. And he settled there. And it took years of devotion to do this difficult thing. And one of his problems was that members of this uh, tribe, they believed in the supernatural. They, they saw spirits and gods all over the place, but they had no category or no word in their language for the idea of a big God who created all things, who would redeem all things. So old Dan had a problem. How do I communicate that? when their language doesn't have a word for it. So he spent years getting to know the people of the tribe. He found that in extended families, there was one figure called the Hayo, H-E-I-O. It sounds like Hayo, Hayo, <laughs> Hayo. It's a father figure, and he would arbitrate disputes, make sure things were fair, and make sure that people were taken care of, the Hayo. So after years of getting to know this tribe, Dan finally began to translate the scriptures, and he started with the book of Genesis. And he says, back before the time of ancestors, the great Hayo created the heavens and the earth. And the people said, wow, we had no idea there was such a being. Is that true? Is there such a one? Well, just to see if they really understood the concept, Dan says, well, what if he is the high-yo for everybody? What if he's not just the high-yo for you or me, but for the cannibals across the river? And then they said, oh, no, oh, no. That would mean we would have to make peace with them. That'd be a good message for the church. So, <laughs> yeah, well, this message for them meant there would be serious implications about life down here on earth and how we would treat people. And the kingdom began to come to this tribe in New Guinea. Something like that is what begins to happen in the Roman Empire after Jesus. This is the force of his life and his message and his story about God, God's love, the power of the Holy Spirit in this brand new community called the church. And Jesus forms this new community, and that brings us to servanthood. Deep, deep in the heart of kingdom is the idea of servanthood. And brother, we struggle with it. We don't even like to hear the word. The kingdom of the earth has always struggled with servanthood. Certainly the Roman Empire did. A lot of what Jesus does is to educate his followers about kingdom life and servanthood. Then it says in Matthew 20, verse 20, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a small favor. What is it you want, Jesus asked. She said, not much, Lord. Just grant that one of these two sons of mine can sit at your right hand and left hand in first class in your kingdom. Oh, well, they didn't really get the kingdom, not yet. And they were worried about where they're going to get to sit. Now, that's kind of a goofy thing, isn't it? Who would ever be worried about what kind of seat they were going to have? Pause for a moment. 
than watch the Emmys, watch the Oscars, watch any type of a political event, watch any kind of a, a rally, a, a rock and roll, whatever. And I'll guarantee you, you can tell who's got status, who's got money, who's got clout by where they sit. It's easy. And they know it. They want to be seen there. She, well, where's my seat? Well, I don't want to sit back here. See, I got on a plane, give you an idea, flying over to London. I got on a plane a few weeks ago. When I boarded, we were separated into two different compartments. The people who sat in the compartment up front were called first class. And the compartment in the back was called coach. Now, they didn't actually say second class, but you knew. <laughs> you knew. First class is the desirable seats because it's all about being served in first class because everything is designed and to reinforce the image of who's going first class. It's all about the status and the money. See, it's all woven together in the kingdom of the earth. In the first class compartment, people were served gourmet food on china and crystal, served by their own flight attendant. In coach, we ate snacks in paper bags. The first class folks, they sat on thrones. They had wide seats, long leg room, free movies. In coach, we got cramped seats, no leg room, and we had to pay five bucks for headsets that weren't worth spit. Well, and they didn't work that good. In first class, people got warm, moist towels for their comfort and personal hygiene. In coach, you got a stew in your own facial sweat. First class was closed off from the rest of us by a curtain, an iron curtain, just like the Holy of Holies. And we could not go past the curtain, for we, we were in the court of the Gentiles. They had their own facilities in first class. First class facilities for only a few people. Those of us in coach could not go past the curtain, even though there was an hour wait to use our facilities. They don't let you get by. That's the kingdom of the earth. It's a struggle to get into first class. One day Jesus leaves heaven to come to earth, and the angels say to him, you'll be traveling first class, of course, Lord. And Jesus said, no, no, I think I'll go coach. You know, manger, stable, carpenter, son of man has no place to lay his head. Think I'll go coach. So he came to earth and nobody recognized him as Messiah because nobody expected a Messiah to fly coach. James and John came to ask if they could get into first class in the kingdom. Can we sit in first class, Lord? We got a lot of frequent flyer miles following you around. And when the 10 heard about that, they became angry with the two brothers. Not only had the two brothers come to Jesus, they had their mommy make the ask. I can just imagine Jesus shaking his head. Wow, we're going to turn the world upside down with you boys. Yeah. And he gathered them all together and he says, boys, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord their authority over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, in my kingdom, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first class must be your slave. Just because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for all. That's in Matthew 20, right? Now, 
Why were the others angry when James and John wanted first-class seats? Was it because they were, is it because the 10 were committed to humility and servanthood and they were upset James and John are going to kind of mess up and tear up the, the image of that new community called the church? Oh, no. They were concerned about where they were going to sit in the pecking order. Are they going to be in the first class or not? There's another word for this called pecking order. Those of you that have a ranch or farm or, or lived on one, you understand this and pretty good. There are many pecking orders. In, in the chicken pen, there is no peace until the chickens find out who's the chief chicken and who's the least. The top, this is going to be good for lunch when you talk, okay? <laughs> the top chicken eats first, and he can peck on any chicken it wants. The middle chickens are pecked on by those above, and they pick on those below. The bottom chicken gets pecked on by everybody. That's life in the pecking order. And lots of animals have pecking orders. I was reading about one about animal behaviorists doing this study on orangutans. So orangutans have a pecking order, for crying out loud. And part of their backside is blue. And those that are the bluest are highest in the pecking order. So researchers took an orangutan that was on the lowest level of the ladder, and they painted his bottom royal blue. <laughs> well, he became the number one orangutan. All the other males deferred to him. He had all the girls he wanted. But then came bad news, because one day the blue paint started to fade. <laughs> and he starts the long trip down the ladder of success and to orangutangian or whatever. He ends up a neurotic orangutan. What a stupid system. Dr. Richard Foster writes, how like chickens we are. There's always a pecking order in the kingdom on this earth. And you can tell it in subtle ways. Who gives way when two people are talking at the same time? Whose jokes are laughed at when they're not even funny? You see it going on in offices. Who's allowed to ramble and pontificate in conversation? Who isn't? Who has to say, I'm sorry? Who doesn't have to say, I'm sorry? Go to a high school cafeteria. You'll find a table where the jocks and the cheerleaders sit together. And no geeky guy would ever even think about sitting there. Why not? There's no rules against it. Ah, it's the law of the pecking order. See, it's stronger by far than any law any government can ever pass. Nobody will violate it because everybody knows how a human being can be crushed by it. It just crushes the human spirit. And this is the way things operate in the kingdom of this earth. And Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them? And their high officials exercise authority over them? Well, of course we know. That's the way things operate. And then he says these four words that change everything. But not so with you. Not so with you. Remember James writing says, I know what's going on even in the church now. He said, if a man comes in with a gold ring, and we've talked about where the status was with these people, you give them the chief seats up front, you make the poor man uh, go somewhere else or sit on the floor, uh, you give preference to those that are rich or famous. He says, not so among you. 
Who gets the chief seats here? It depends on what time you get up and come to church. I mean, that's about it. Now, the only, the only time we, we, we take children off the front is because they become, and it's not their fault. God didn't make them to sit here and listen to me. They can't sit there. They're not made for that. Put them in the nursery or in the kids' ministry back there where they can scream, shout, run, dance, throw the ball, do everything they want to do. Throw up, doesn't matter. But I don't want you to be distracted and the enemy will use that. That's why that front row is somewhat protected in that way only. But it's not protected for status. If Justin Beaver showed up with his little skinny rear end and Cindy and I sat right behind him in New York City with his little naked butt hanging out of his breeches, Justin, you just sit where you can find an empty seat. You don't get to sit up front because you're Justin Beaver. You don't get to sit up front because you're some superstar. You, you earn that privilege by coming on time. People sometimes say, I wish worship went a little longer. Well, if you'd show up on time, it would be longer. Thank you. Yeah. So James was telling them, you stop preferential treatment like that. Remember, now when you go out or you go to a secular event, you're going to get it. It's inevitable. It's okay. But he says, in the church, don't do that. Don't behave like that. Don't act like that. My kingdom's different than that. Everybody's important. Everybody counts with God. So he says, not with you, Summit, not with our home, our office, our neighborhood, not in our family, not with you. We don't behave that way. So what Jesus is doing is abolishing the pecking order. He's calling for the creation of an alternative culture that expresses and incarnates the kingdom of God. Up there is coming down here now. And he tells stories about what the kingdom of God is like. And our job in, in this 21st century is to try to figure out how to retell those stories in ways people will understand. The kingdom of God is like an airline where there's no first class, no second class, and everybody sits all together at the table. The kingdom of God is kind of like Southwest Airlines, only with better food. Yeah. But I mean, obviously, if you get, I fly a lot. Not only was I a pilot, I've got 10 million miles from, who doesn't like, like to be served? I, I like to reserve a seat where I want to sit on the plane. In Southwest, you get a card and you get a number and that's it. What's left, you get. Well, my natural human tendency is I don't like that. I want to pick my seat. <laughs> So in the church, it's like Southwest Airlines. You get to pick your seat if you get here early. You just pick your seat. But it's not based on your social, economic, or, or prejudice, or, or your, uh, your power, or your position, see? So the kingdom of God is where people who have money buy the most expensive tickets, get the best seats, and then give them to people who don't have any money at all. And, and where people who have power, instead of complaining about the service and how their tastes aren't being catered to, they become flight attendants and walk around the plane, the church, for people who don't have much and don't have much power and say, may I help you? May I serve you? And this is because God is the one who owns the airline. Yeah. He's the pilot of the flight. And he's walking around with a moist towel and basin washing people's feet for crying out loud. And then he says to the disciples, now what I'm doing, I've set as an example for you to do. Yeah. See, there's nothing like the kingdom of God. Never been anything like it. The kingdom of God is like a barnyard where there's no pecking order and the greatest chicken is the humblest chicken. 
Nobody's strutting, nobody's pecking, and every chicken is looking out for every other chicken. <laughs> There's nothing like the kingdom of God. When people would hear about it, they'd say, man, that's what I want more than anything else. I want to be part of that. And they would sacrifice everything, even their lives, their possessions, and they'd do it with great joy. Then things started to be turned upside down in the Roman Empire. Let me give you a picture of the early church for the first several centuries of its history. The church had no buildings, no property, no temples, nothing like the place where we're gathered this morning. And notice these verses that talk about where the church met and gathered. Writing to the church at Corinth, Paul writes, Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets in their house. In his letters to Rome, he talks about a couple, and then he says, greet the church that meets at their house. To Philemon, he writes, to Aphria, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Then one more verse to the church at Colossae. He says, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. So where did the church meet in the first century? In houses, in households. Now, household in the Roman word is not the same as a household in America. Much different. It was different than just a mom and a dad and a couple of kids. It was a basic unit of life in the Roman Empire. It would be made up of the head of the household, then his spouse or spouses, because polygamy was widespread, their children, slaves, former slaves who were now free people, often clients of that household, hired laborers, and sometimes even tenants. So you can see, pretty big community. Almost everything about the household, who got the big rooms, what clothes people were allowed to wear or not wear, who did the chores nobody wanted, like foot washing, how people ate, when they could eat, what they could eat. Everything was designed to reinforce that pecking order in the Roman Empire. And it was generally assumed that everybody would share the religion of the head of that household. Remember the Philippian jailer took, took Paul home, he preached the gospel, and the whole family got saved, right? That was the high yo. They all followed him. Look, at the, here's a letter written by a first century Roman author named Pliny. What a name, Pliny. And it's about a dinner at such a household in Rome and how there were divisions that reinforced uh, their eating patterns. He writes, the best dishes were set before the host and a select few friends. And heaps of scraps of food were given to the rest of the company. One lot was intended for himself, the host, and us, his friends, another for his lesser friends, and the third for his and our freedmen. If anything was left over, it went to the slaves afterward. That's the way it was done in the culture. Status was a household word in the Roman Empire. Then the church comes along, and they don't meet once a week in a separate building, someplace like we do here. They're a household group. And when somebody becomes a follower of Jesus, the household begins to change. And they begin to experience kind of a, a different kind of a life altogether, day by day, at their work, at the table where they eat. This is why so often when people came to Jesus in the New Testament, you'll read about them coming as households to the Lord. Now the rich people are buying the best seats, 
and giving them to the poor and the powerful people are picking up a towel and washing the feet of the slaves and serving has become a household word. The church is so passionate about it at that time, any time there was slippage in that value, boy, the apostle would go after it. For example, St. Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He talks about one of their gatherings for a feast that included the Lord's Supper. And in this letter, you can feel his anger and passion about servanthood. He is speaking to these wealthier members, and this is what he writes. He said, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. Can you believe that? They lived in a world where everybody was divided into groups, first class, second class, picking orders. He says, you come together, and instead of eating the Lord's Supper, you bring a lot of food and make pigs of yourself. Some get left out and go hungry. Why would you stoop to desecrate God's church that way? Why would you actually shame God's poor? Well, this is what's going on here. The people who have resources and means are feeding themselves first, feeding themselves the best, and the poor are being left out. That's how it worked in Rome. That's how it worked in their households. But Paul comes along and says, oh, no, not in the church. You can't shame God's poor. This is God's kingdom. I would never have believed you would stoop to this, and I'm not going to stand by and say nothing because it's a violation of the kingdom of God. This is who we are. Don't let the world creep back into the church, and don't accept their culture in the church. So Jesus has made serving the household word. That's why he made himself a servant. So this gathering of Christ's followers was so completely different, there wasn't a word in the Roman world to describe it. They had households, they had trade guiles, they had associations, they had clubs, they had temples where people would go and make sacrifices to their gods, but they had nothing like this. So they ended up calling it the ecclesia. If you ever heard the word ecclesiology, it's the study of the church. And that's where it comes from. It's a generic word in the Greek, ecclesia. It simply means gathering, those called out. They didn't know what to call it. The leaders of the church called themselves diakoni. A diakonist was a person whose function was to wait on tables. It was a waiter. And that's what their leaders called themselves. Hey, we're waiters. Centuries early, Plato had said, how can anybody be happy when he's the slave of anybody else? And then Jesus comes along and wrecks it and says, how can anybody be happy unless he is the servant of everyone else? That's the kingdom. Never been anything like it. That's God's dream for us, for our church, and for folks when they think about church or the community. No first class, no second class, no pecking orders, no impressing anybody, just a community of waiters. So the question for us is, how's your heart? How's your heart on this? How's your mind on this subject, really? We all need God's help, don't we, to be a servant because it just bucks up against the cultural training we have. This coming weekend is the biggest weekend of the year, even bigger than Christmas. It's Easter. So that is the largest weekend of the church in America. We need help this coming Saturday for our large, enormous event. It's from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. Now, after service, I would, 
I would entreat you, please stop out in the south lobby and find a time slot at the table you would be able to serve. You don't know. You could change a life for eternity. Easter can be a magnificent time to preach good news, the gospel, and to entertain those children with great joy and their parents who are with them, enticed maybe to come back, maybe to visit. You don't know. But we bless those children, have a couple of thousands of kids, so we need you. You don't have to work from one to five. Maybe you could give one hour. You go out there and sign on the slot. Maybe the last two hours. But go out and sign up and do something. Step out of first class into coach with your little towel, and let's wash some dirty feet. Let's go out there and bless those kids and have a great time. Amen? I'm asking you to do it. Life in the kingdom is not just serving occasionally. There has, to be, there has to be something like concrete expressions of it. When a church is arranged according to spiritual gifts, not titles, not position, not status, not tenure, not by who went to seminary or who didn't, just according to spiritual gifts, then everybody who follows Jesus becomes a servant. It's about being a servant and making servanthood the normal thing in that kingdom of God. It's just normal. In my home, my cubicle, at my office, in my school, in the neighborhood. And for that, I don't know about you, I need God's help. I could just serve occasionally, but still stay in control of my life. I could serve occasionally and then try to make sure if I do, somebody's watching. Or I'll serve when I feel like it. But to become a servant means I'll do it when nobody's watching. To become a servant means I do it even when I don't feel like doing it. To become a servant means that I no longer do it for applause or recognition, but because I follow a towel-carrying, cross-bearing Messiah who flies coach. That's the kingdom of God. Amen. Hey, thanks again for joining us today. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe and share it with a friend. Follow me by visiting the links in the description. I'm praying today that God richly blesses you this entire week.